Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Guys, today we have uh, one of the personalities in the token space that has really created a lot of noise, partially because he's created a lot of great content, partially because he's got some strong opinions, but also because he's had some insightful views on how the economy, uh, venture funding works, and how the ICO and token economy is developing. Today we'd like to welcome David Siegel. He's the CEO of the Pillar Project and also CEO of 2030AG. Uh, thanks for joining us, David. Thanks, Carl. It's great to be here. So we'd like to start off with where you came from. What did you do? What did you study? What was your first job? Just to give us a little bit of context to the man behind the myth. <laughs> there, I'm sure there are myths. I went to Stanford in 82, and I studied under a guy you may have heard of, Donald Knuth. He was my thesis advisor, and we did, uh, we did digital typography. We figured out how to make laser printers put letters on pages. Um, then my first job was at Pixar in 1986. That was the first year of Pixar as a, as a separate company from Lucasfilm when Steve put the money in. Uh, and I worked there one year as a writer. It's not a studio then. It's, it's actually a hardware company at that point. As Pixar, people don't understand, know is uh, failed. Pixar failed. And then they restarted the company with new money in a, and around the studio model. I had left already back to Silicon Valley to start one of the first of what would later be so far 23 businesses uh, that over time, a few of which have actually worked, <laughs> most of which have failed. But walk us through a few of those. Well, you know, 20 years in Silicon Valley, I, uh, I designed, for example, a typeface that's sitting on most people's computers. The first was called Tecton. That was a, that was a worldwide bestseller. Then right. the one you have right now is called Zapfino on your Mac right there. Uh, that was that, you. That's my product. I didn't design it. I, it's, I'm the producer. I went to the, the calligrapher named Hermann Zapf and said, let's do this. And he said, sure. So that's my project, yeah. And that came out of a failed startup, which was to do calligraphy uh, for laser printers. And that was awesome. The product was fantastic. And the font market collapsed at the time we were ready to go to market. <clears throat> what came after that? I mean, I know you went and sort of did your own thing for a little bit, Single Vision. Well, I did, I did fonts. I, did, I painted Macintosh computers in different colors. I, uh, I tried a bunch of experiments. And then I, I was actually making really good money as a type designer with royalties when the web came out in 1993. And so I went down to the library in Palo Alto where they had one of the very first web terminals hooked up. And it was free and nobody was there. So I spent weeks and weeks in the Palo Alto library uh, surfing the web, which probably had about 300 websites, maybe, or fewer when I started. This was maybe October 93, so there might have been 100 at the very beginning. Uh, and I built my very first website over that Christmas New Year, so early, very early 94. And things obviously took off from there. And I, uh, long story short, I wrote the first book on web design, started one of the world's first digital agencies, moved from Palo Alto to San Francisco. Uh, and we kind of pioneered this you know, putting companies on the web, which was like HTML. We charged a ton of money to, to build a website. Uh, and we, uh, we put first websites up for many Fortune 500 companies. Uh, eBay came to us as a startup, and we said, sorry, we don't have any time for you guys. It's, we're just doing big projects. 
and uh, let's say 95 to 2000 or 19, late 1999, I wrote uh, four books in that period. I gave a lot of speeches and I taught the first generation of web designers their craft. Uh, and then the company, our big client was KPMG and they just bought us in 1999, uh, you know, six months before the, the, the crash. So how did you survive that crash? How, how did, what, what were you doing? I mean, obviously, with having been bought out, you probably went and enjoyed yourself a little bit. I did okay. But uh, yeah, so walk us through those dark years that many of us lived through. You know, so in Silicon Valley, most of the venture capitalists and entrepreneurs were meeting at Home Depot to talk about their remodels uh, in 2000 and 2001, because that's where you were going to extract some value from the market. <laughs> if at all, it wasn't going to be in your tech company. Uh, and uh, I did a bunch of angel investing for the next, I'd say, 15 years. And I made most of the classic investment mistakes that most angel investors make. And I came out with about the same results, a lousy return, um, basically a negative return. I lost money angel investing and didn't like that. Um, after trying several other things, I, I tried to start a dating site that didn't get off the ground. A um, number of other projects I tried. I was a professional chocolate tasting uh, advisor and professional for a while, leading chocolate tasting events. Uh, by the way, I have one coming up in late April. Uh, uh, here. What was the company name for mm -hmm. the chocolate That tasting? one was called Wow Cacao. Wow Cacao. You might find it on archive.org. It's long gone. Uh, economics didn't work there. But I'm having a fun one in April 27th, I think, at, at Rise. Uh, and then um, kind of like you can, I think of myself as a surfer. I'm out there in the calm water, waiting and watch, scanning the horizon for a wave. And when it comes, I paddle fast to try to get to the front. And so the last one was in 2010, the, uh, the semantic web in my book came out. And so I was working on that from 2007 maybe. And I'd, I'd always, I've been talking about the personal data locker since 1997. Um, the origin of that was from a, a talk I gave at Stanford in 97. So. When the semantic web came, I paddled hard, I wrote a book, I gave speeches, and it all died. And probably 10,000 of us around the world were, you know, disappointed, and venture capitalists and entrepreneurs as well. It just I remember that phase. It, it all got plowed under, underneath the social, yeah, right, <clears throat> the social network, <laughs> right, uh, and big data kind of killed it, unfortunately. So that was about structured data, and that's what my book was about. Yeah. Um, so that kind of slowly starts us getting into your days at crypto design. Well, there were no days at crypto design. That was another just failed attempt to get things going. So what really happened was in uh, mid 2016, was that the Dow hack? Yeah, very early 2016, I was invited to the Slack at con the Consensus Slack. The guys in New York and Joe Lubin and his team. I'd met them. Uh, I was really interested in helping them, working with them. And they said, well, come into the Slack and see what's going on. So I, I built a little site called DecentralStation.com. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a just an educational site about what's going on. If you go now, it's kind of frozen in time in about mid-2016 of the early DAP projects. It's a listing of all what's going on back then. I haven't had time to, to keep it up. I wrote an explainer for the DAO hack by translating what, asking dumb questions in the, in the consensus Slack and getting them to tell me what's really going on and I wrote I wrote a plain English explainer for journalists that was very popular so they could understand what was happening uh, and then I, I kept writing and just putting my thoughts out there and I did build a little website 
for crypto design. That's another thing that failed. I wasn't able to sell my design services because, you know, this is all just nascent, mm. you know, 23-year-olds throwing mm. stuff up. So there's no, nobody had a design budget. <laughs> uh, and then I started the idea of what I would call a better consensus or a poor man's consensus because consensus has always been very well funded. Uh, when I sort of, you know, joined their Slack, they were about 60 people maybe. Mm. And uh, as they grew, I kept, you know, helping as much as I could. And then I, I kind of got interrupted by being accepted as a candidate to be the dean of Stanford Business School. Mm. So I took a little time off to write that essay. That's called, that's at openstanford.com on how to fix business school education, which I'm not even sure should even exist, but uh, <laughs> not sure we have any evidence that it's a good use of anybody's two years, mm. unless, except for research, which actually... On the research side, there's been some fantastic uh, stuff. Uh, but the MBA, I think, is a product that has well passed its mm. sell-by date and needs to be thrown out or reinvented. Mm. And that didn't work. They chose the tall, good-looking dean of dean of economics. Of of you are tall and good-looking. No, they took the dean of economics that they already knew. It's oh, very possible that they just put up this <laughs> ad in The Economist just because they had to go through the pro forma. It's not sure. I, I don't know. Uh, they took the local guy, uh, and then, and not surprising, you know, we go with what we know, right? Yeah. And things that are unfamiliar make us uncomfortable. Uh, so I studied, I studied cognitive biases for many years and statistics. So after I sort of, I would say, had very poor returns as an angel investor, I started studying statistics, and prospect theory, and behavioral economics, and cognitive biases up, uh, up and down. Um, I would I would say I've spent you know five years studying that stuff and I've got a website uh, where again I tried to start a consult another consulting business at businessagilityworkshop.com and that shows I have a, a series of videos on Bayesian reasoning decision science uh, how to apply some of these applied rationality to business that didn't go anywhere that's impossible to make that sale where everyone's everyone who would hire you to do that is convinced that he doesn't need that mm. so. Uh, I, I stuck with the crypto stuff and uh, kept writing and started this concept of 2030, which, in fact, you may have heard of Stefan Karpishek. I met him. He's in insurance, ether risk. He was in the consensus slack. We met and decided to try to put something together. And the goal was a broadly diversified portfolio of crypto projects um, that we would not spin out and would not accelerate, but we would keep as a kind of a hive company working on a lot of projects. And we went to venture capitalists, mostly in London. Um, we didn't meet you, we did meet a bunch of your peers. Uh, certainly met with, you know, a dozen or so, and that didn't work. Uh, where's your proof of concept? Where's your focus? Where's your, you know, <laughs> minimum viable product? We didn't have any of that stuff. And we just said, no, we just want to build a portfolio and have a lot of, try a lot of experiments and not predict what works, but just follow on whatever works. Uh, that didn't work. Well, we didn't get any investment. So a year ago, so the beginning, very big first or second of January 2017, I launched uh, 2030.io as a website to build a community and said, okay, fine, I'll crowdsource it. I'll, we'll do it anyway. I don't, you know, why should I listen to VCs? They're not always right. So I built a community site, a site that got hundreds of people into it. Um, probably we ended up pretty quickly with 500 people in a Slack. And we started looking at things to do. I started designing the Cryptex Index. You know, again, a broadly diversified portfolio of 
cryptocurrencies uh, in one single token, which of course is a security itself, but uh, started working on the design of that, put up some volunteers, put up a website for that, uh, which you can see at tokenfactory.io. Uh, in fact, Consensus asked me if they could have that URL, that domain. I said, well, let me just have like one thing for myself and mm -hmm. you guys have like the rest of the world. <laughs> and so um, next thing we know, we were looking for an idea, uh, maybe in March for an ICO to raise some money for 2030. We had a hundred ideas, we all talked about it, and then we came up with an idea, I won't bore you with the precursor of the Pillar Project, which we geared up for and started going down the launch path. This was March, April last year, uh, and then realized it wasn't going to work, pivoted hard into making essentially that same system into a wallet that I realized tied into the personal data locker. Actually, I have an essay on this on medium.com from about five years ago on fixing the data problem. Like, what's the data problem? You know, your data problem is everywhere and you don't have it, right? And VCs have no interest in this. You know, as an idea, they want to see the proof of concept. Well, I didn't have the ability to do that. And it's like boiling the ocean. I've been, I've proposed this to, to Kleiner Perkins, to Vinod Kosla, to all these people 15 years ago. And they said, great, but you're boiling the ocean. You know, let me know when it turns into something, no, that's not, I've seen this before, not getting in there. So I wrote a white paper, which I called a gray paper because I was tired of writing white papers at that point. I had to do something different and, and it was about boiling the ocean. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the good news is that crowdfunding sort of came at the same time where those two paths crossed. After about 20 years of talking about the personal data locker, I was able to put it out with a group of volunteers in front of investors worldwide and we had a very large number of small investors. So we had no big whales. We were overwhelmed with YouTube people on YouTube saying this is the token to have. And in four days, in a very short, actually three days, in a very short amount of time, we collected $20 million of Ether in, in July. Ether then went up about five times. And so now we have enough money to boil the ocean or at least try a whole bunch of little things and see if we can get it off the ground. So that was a great history, you know, this, this huge background that spans decades with highs and lows and all sorts of, of interesting stories in between. And one of the things that comes up during that narrative is this view of venture capitalists, of sort of a traditional model, not only of, of traditional MBAs, but of traditional venture capitalists. <laughs> right. and, and I think that there's, there's something, there's probably some good stories to tell there. Maybe you can start off by telling us what you think is going to be happening in the space of investing and why, in your mind, the VC is, is dead. Dead man walking. Do you want me to start at the, the before picture or go to the future? No, go through the entire, all, all the things. How that, I came to this conclusion, came maybe? To this conclusion, so, okay, yeah. cool. So, right. So, I had lost quite a bit of money as an angel investor. I was also involved in a bunch of head funds and just had some index things that worked out okay. Um, but basically, I thought it was about timing. And I, I was looking for the elusive, you know, great deal like everybody else. And then I came across, uh, and then I thought, you know, I don't think this is working. And, I, and then I read the, uh, the Kaufman Report, uh, you know, called We Have Met the Enemy and He Is Us. Uh, and I took that really seriously. So I started looking for, okay, is there anybody in venture who gets this and is diversifying? And I found Right Side Capital. I don't know if you're familiar with Right Side Capital in, in Palo Alto. Some, I would call them genius level statisticians who decided to look at the venture space and figure out what was going on um, through data. 
and their blog is amazing. I highly recommend it. It's called it's at possibleinsight.com. It's my friend Kevin Dick. He decided to become, you know, to help me understand this and take me through this because I said, well, you know, you take board seats, of course. He said, no, we don't take any board seats. Well, what? what? You don't take any board? Well, no, it doesn't work. There's no evidence that that works at all. Well, I said, well, so how much do you have saved up for follow-on investments? If you, you do pre-seed and seed, how much do you save for follow-on? He goes, nothing. That doesn't make any sense. I said, what? <laughs> you know, this continuous series of revelations where he said, no, it's better to buy more lottery tickets than to follow on. That, that you're, you're concentrating your portfolio too much and the risk-reward isn't right. And here, we modeled it, you know, and here's, here's our model um, based on data, 20 years of, of data from Robert Wilpank. And so you read Robert Wilpank, which you may have, and because he's, he's got a report on angel investing in the UK. And he says, yeah, follow-on investing is broken. So just better to buy more lottery tickets and get the convexity at the higher risk, lower entry point. So I just started like scratching my head and <clears throat> retooling my brain around investing. And, you know, Kevin said, look, we're, we're essentially trying to bring index investing or smart beta to a very inefficient asset class that uh, most, most people haven't, you know, don't even touch. It's frontier investing. So if you, if you have a, the thesis is, if you have a broadly diversified portfolio of high risk, high reward investments, um, that has enough convexity to pay off pretty well. And to be, and if you look at Kevin's numbers, uh, right up there in the top decile of the big guys, you know, just by building a machine. And you, and you guys are, you know, to, to your credit, you, you've made 100 investments in the last fund, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, a bit, they're one step up. They're doing 300 per portfolio. That just gives you less volatility and a better chance at a reasonable return, you have a little more volatility and a little maybe possibility for a little higher return. Mm -hmm. That's fair, right? So it's built into your model already. I mean, I'd say, I would say you're somewhere between 80 and 90% there, right? I mean, without doing all the ridiculous math that they've spent years doing, um, and it may have been intuitive or it may have been through trial and error and pain and suffering, I'm not sure. Trial and error. Trial, okay. <laughs> Probably pain and suffering involved, <laughs> right? And so that model and coupled with, you know, no board meetings, no follow on, a whole bunch of other things that don't make sense and just try to build a factory that like, for example, uh, they're not interested in anybody's pitch. Uh, they don't really want to know how good you are, what you do, because no one knows and it's, it's probably 50, at least 50% luck. Uh, Bill Gross thinks it's about timing. I wrote, and you've seen his TED talk, I wrote an essay rebutting that. I don't know if you've seen that, saying it's actually, you got to, think about what you mean by timing here. Um, I, I think that's another you know, shared delusion. So, so what they do is they just build this machine where it's all diversification. It's by region, mm -hmm. it's by sector, it's a little bit by stage, it's a bit by strategy, and they won't put too many in any bucket. So they're doing 300 where like any one bucket doesn't have more than about five. And they have no problem funding competitors because they don't want to know. That's it, right? And their returns for the last five years have been phenomenal. Uh, in fact, you know, Kevin and I spend a lot of time talking about macroeconomics, which I'm actually working on making a documentary on money. Uh, he has, he's become a good friend and a real mentor for me. And after five or six years of this back and forth conversation, uh, we just, the Pillar Project, just became the largest investor in their next fund. Wow. Um, so we are, we're their anchor investor. 
um, because we, we get a good strategic value from that by having exposure to a large number of companies, many of which are already looking at ICOs and we're building an ICO platform. So, so that's all good. And uh, my fundamental thesis, Carlos, is that if you look at, if you study the history of venture investing, of yeah. professional venturing, the two and 20 yeah. people, that if, if there had never ever in history been a single professional investor, and entrepreneurs had to get money from friends and family and then, you know, just get out there in the market and, right, suffer and do it the hard way. Uh, I think the world would look about the same as it does, really, yeah. honestly. And I think, and, and I really take this seriously, I think that just the logos and the names of the CEOs would be different, right? But that's just scrambled around a different world that we're not in that pretty much runs roughly the same and we'd have something like Apple Computer, we have something like Google, we'd have something like Twitter. I'm sure in some parallel universe that's what that's exactly what's happened. Well, there's millions of parallel universes. Yeah, so David, you've done a, a lot of great writing on the definitional and taxonomical kind of structuring of uh, understanding of tokens and, and the mm -hmm. ICO, mm -hmm. uh, but it would be good to get your view on the token, token financing market at the moment. Uh, quite recently, we've seen this trend towards these rather big, these colossal pre-sales, Telegram, <laughs> most notably, for example, as a shift away from the ICO itself, which is you know public to all. Um, it would be good to understand your views on that, um, especially given uh, you've, you've said before that while pre-sales um, are important, they don't need to be large, they don't need to be spectacularly large. Uh, why don't you walk us through your thinking on, on pre-sales and, and why they don't always correlate with the size of sale itself and also the success of a protocol? Let me first talk, if I may, about ICOs in general. We have had now a good 10 months of pretty serious activity in the ICO space, mostly for these, these uh, utility tokens that magically aren't securities and they because they are some kind of a unit of payment inside some future system. And because it's pretty clear that there's a there's a spectrum of utility like it's like a ticket like to ride a bus or a subway all the way to it's a security right and many of these things that are supposed to be tickets like iota would be a good example it's just supposed to be a little one-off ticket right they are issued in a limited number right with a cap which is why it's great for amazing money that's that's the key feature there's two main reasons that fundraising has worked and that's one is that it's capped and the other is the early discounts are so deep it's not that much about the project you do that same project with no cap on the number of tokens that's that's dead in the water you do it without some deep discounts to get the you know the the social uh, validation going that's dead in the water right I've, I've already asked you know audiences how many people would be invest in a pre-sale if you had to lock up for one year and you couldn't trade no hands go up. Okay, so what do you have to do? You have to discount the crap out of it to get those people over the line, which gives you your story, right? So maybe a lot of that isn't going to work. Maybe a lot of it. Maybe we're going to see numbers in the ICO space that are similar or worse than what we see in funded pre-seed and seed stage startups, which is, you know, roughly 90% of pre-seed and seed stage startups that get that funding go away. Yeah, return no value. So I predict that we have to go to an equity model. I'm, I'm saying this is, this is not working. This is not sustainable. We're not going to end this year with a bunch of utility tokens that are capped that are raising huge amounts. 
we have to go to an equity model because people are throwing money at me. People say, look, I don't care how much I have to pay you. We're going to raise $40 million. Just put your name on the front of our website and give me a quote. I will give you Bitcoin after Bitcoin after Bitcoin to do that, right? Of course, right? Because they can just add another $10 million to the raise. It's, there's no cost to, add, to change that number, right? It's just free money. Once you're driving the traffic to it, why would you cut it off, right? That's why sales go on for four weeks. That's why the numbers are big. I mean, I, I don't know. Almost none of them are under $40 million because why? Uh, that has got to change. We have got to go to an equity model where it costs you to give up, right? Now, how much, now the question with equity is, all right, how little do I have to give away to get the money to get to first base, right? We have to go to stepwise financing here because every single ICO is saying, we are going to hit a home run. You need to finance that. It's home run funding, right? But we know that more than 90% of that goes away. Why are we building in world domination to the first round? As an investor, do you want to put money into a whole bunch of things that are pre-funding world domination when you know most of that will fail? We already got some information the other day that at least, I don't know, 40% of ICOs from last year have already failed and aren't coming back. Uh, so you know you want enough money to last forever or keep trying and trying. That's the stepwise model is here for a reason. It's just a way of sort of dealing with incremental risk. It's a way of dealing with incremental risk. It's a way of prove it, show you can get some traction with, a, with, in that, with customers. And if you don't, um, you know, generally you, you, you can try again or you, you have to come up with a new thing to try again. So, I mean, that, that implies evolution. Mm -hmm. and, and, and this, exactly. This is a, uh, an interesting point. Uh, our thinking here is that token sales will actually start to resemble venture to a certain extent. Uh, in so far as there'll be milestone-based financing that will maybe release capital upon upon certain benchmarks being hit, such as network usage. Right. You, you've kind of rejected, as I understand it, that yes. milestone-based view. Do you want to walk us through your thinking well, there? You're reading my work. Very good. You're doing your homework. That's right. So, first of all, I do think we need stepwise financing. I think that people don't understand that ICOs are project finance. They're not company finance. Uh, you you know, you're, we're going to build a system and we've got funding to do it based on the white paper. We don't have funding to pivot and do something completely different. That's what entrepreneurs do. That's what venture investing, equity investing is about. So there's a big difference. Um, I think that maybe a, a small number of serious uh, open source projects should have these utility tokens. Maybe, although the law and the tax situation doesn't work for those e either. But let's say that most of these things should be equity. And now, you know what? There's this venture capital business has evolved for a bunch of reasons. For example, dilution turns out to be, you know, turns out to be good reason to have dilution, right? Because you, you take the most risk, but there's also the illusion of control where you want the most control, but control doesn't really exist. Most of this stuff just goes away and you can't do anything about it. The board meetings don't help. So I think that this idea of stepwise, in other words, crowd, the crowd can approve that you've gotten, you've said you're going to get here and you get there and then the crowd can release the next amount of money through some smart contracts, some DAO, and, and Vitalik has written about this. I think that's also the illusion of control. I think that's the idea that entrepreneurs end up doing what they say they'll do, which is almost never the case. I mean, look at any large successful company that started it, you know, all companies start somewhere and they almost never are even close to the same business they started in. We all know this. So this stepwise thing is a good idea. The milestone based is less of a good idea because you will pivot. 
alongside that stepwise approach to, to financing uh, protocols and, and people building these, these crypto projects, do you think we're going to see any other innovation in, in sort of fiscal and monetary regimes for, for these crypto projects? Um, and, and also, what are your thoughts on, on sort of airdrops and bounties and, and these kind of ways of, <laughs> of, of incentivizing protocol usage and development? Uh, this is a big topic. Let me first say that I think we hope to invent a new kind of token called a ticket. If you take out your wallet right now and look at the digital tokens that are there, and they're all digital, uh, you can see barcodes on most of these cards in, 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 that you have. It's a wacky that we have paper cash. That's a bit of an anomaly. But, but most of these tokens are digital. Uh, they're tickets, right? It's your gym card. It's your subway. It's your airline boarding pass. It's it's a lot of things that give you access to a system, huh? But they're not limited in number, and it turns out they're pretty much stably priced, right? What a crazy idea! So why would you want to ride a bus this week for one pound, and then next week the same bus ride is two pounds, and the week after it's fifty pence? There's some parts in Latin America where that happens. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure if the bus shows up at all. <laughs> so tickets in the real world outnumber share-like things that have volatility, you know, by eight, eight, five to one or something like that. Okay. So how about most of these things are actually tickets? Well, the answer is that tickets suck at raising money, right? Because what we have at Kickstarter, we have tickets, right? You're buying a product. Right? It's not a lot of price volatility there because the frying pan doesn't appreciate in value 10 times, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, or the movie or the whatever. Uh, but that's what people are selling at Kickstarter. And I recommend that we look at a Kickstarter model for fundraising. Because the fundraising, you see there's a fundamentally broken thing here called fixed number of tokens raises a bunch of money if you have a lot of hype and a bunch of advisors and do a bunch of media and social media, right? And that raises a bunch of money. The problem is later, you know, when the token holders are saying, you know, what is up with this? There's so many things broken with that token later in, in regard to the system. Um, so, so we're definitely going towards a subscription model in our system, not a, pre, not a pay-as-you-go model. I think that's, that's broken. For, for volatility reasons and for tax reasons, it's a disaster. So I think that almost all ICOs have to, I'm sorry to jump on this, but it's important, have to go to a subscription model, which essentially is all you can eat for a given period. We're also probably gonna to go to a staking model where if you have a certain number of pillar, then we'll pay for your fees and access to the system, right? And not a transactional model. And second, uh, every ICO is gonna to have to build in a tax, a tax uh, calculator. So that because these are commodities and you've got to have your tax basis, your tax currency in the system, and they're going to have to, every ICO, every project is going to have to calculate your tax liability based on your, you know, your net gain or loss on the, on the, the commodity at the end of the year. Uh, that should not be an afterthought. This should be an active part of using the system. Every time there's any movement of any crypto, anything, the tax consequences should be registered in a, some kind of ledger that you can print out anytime, so you can you can calculate your gain. That'd be and so loss. amazing. You would have to deal with that after the fact. Be like, hey, uh, why some you are doing, doing this. It's insane. We've been promised tax reports from some of our vendors. No chance. They can't. You know. Wow. You know they've got thousands and thousands. Of, one of them has forty thousand customers. They're doing tax reports on after the fact. They're in in my currency that I pay tax in. It's like because I don't care about other currencies that I don't pay tax in. Yeah. It's insane. 
Yeah, so the tax implications here are even worse than I'm saying now. Uh, that's why I'm going tonight to meet with HMRC to talk about tax issues, and we're trying to get a dialogue going with New York State and the SEC. Anyway, and you asked a question that was totally different. So, so now, in light of that, go ahead. I'd just like to, to take you up on, on the tax thing there. Um, and you, you've also written before on, on the existing regulatory framework and why you think it's broken. But yeah, do you, could you characterize here your thoughts on how the current framework, the things it's doing right and the things that, that could be repaired, especially as it, it relates to the SEC with speaking a day after they've just launched a probe, apparently, into a whole bunch of crypto projects. What a shock. Right. Okay, a couple things. I'll try to make it fast. The SEC, uh, the laws were written in 1934 and 1940. Uh, they pertain to the securities. They're really about retail investing. And by the way, retail investing doesn't really exist anymore. So that's out. Like that, you're not there. Their goal is to protect the investors, and they're not doing that because there's no more retail investing. So they're already like in bad need of an overhaul. And here they come cramming the, the new stuff into the existing bottles. And the, the security test, the Howey test, uh, is one of these just that just it's a broad spectrum of all different kinds of tokens. And you can draw a line anywhere you like. Tokens cross that line all the time. So a token could easily be launched as a security. And then according to the SAFT documents, magically then becomes a utility token later, even though the volatility is horrendous and investors could lose their shirts on that stuff. Um, you know, why can you go lose all your money paying on lottery tickets at the lottery that the government makes money on and, and it's fully regulated, but over here in token land, you know, you, you're going to have to go with these things that are also insanely volatile. And if they're not going to be regulated, people can lose all their money on. So there's this, this concept that there's this black and white division between securities and, and utility tokens, and it doesn't exist. So, so my question is, why are you regulating the products? Why are you regulating any financial products anymore? It doesn't, that test doesn't work, and it's not practical, and no one can get financing based on all this uncertainty. And putting certainty down just decides who goes to jail and who doesn't, like the failed war on drugs will later be seen as a model for what we call later call the failed war on financial crime. The AML laws don't prevent money laundering. The guys who know how to launder money do just fine. You know, it just puts a bunch of little guys in jail because the line got drawn in some random place. And practically, so if you were designing the regulatory framework and you, you had carte blanche yeah. to just do oh. the whole thing, what would be your three main priorities or, or policies? So it's in there. It's in the first of all. I want to steer people to the token handbook. It's thetokenhandbook.com. There's a chapter on an open letter to the SEC, and it says, "Look, you can't regulate the products, and you, and it doesn't work to regulate the exchanges." Sophisticated, you know, group investors, which is almost all we have left anymore, know how to deal with this stuff. And the problem is, for the if if your mandate, remember the mandate is to protect consumers. That's it. Right? Really, that's why we go through all this licensing and all this legal expenditure to help the SEC protect consumers. So there's good evidence that that doesn't work, and they're not helping consumers. So if you want to help consumers, you need to educate consumers, investors, on how to invest. The lesson you have learned here about diversification and that risk is okay and exposure is not, right? Risk is more important than exposure, as Nassim Taleb teaches everyone. That's what they should work on. Seriously, the risk, risk is not that big of a problem. Risk is not what the SEC thinks it is. If I can get in front of Congress and testify this, I will show them 
risk is not as big of a deal as you think it is. It's the exposure that kills you. Edward Thorpe, probably the world's best investor of all time, has, has just come out with his autobiography about a year ago, and he just drills it down. You know, it's exposure that kills you. That book is called A Man for All Markets. It's probably one of the best investing books in history. It's the exposure. So now let's talk about how to help customers, help investors limit exposure. You know what? It's a lot like limiting exposure to marijuana and heroin, isn't it? Right? I mean... I wouldn't know, man. Well, ask me on right on. Podcast. Right on. You would have no idea. But I... And I... It doesn't matter whether I have any idea or not. I'm telling you, it's not the risk. It's the exposure. It's the amount. And you got to be able to use good judgment because the amount, it could be easily different for different people. We could have different differential diagnoses here. So it's about education. C customer education and free markets. That's And that's not going to go over well with I don't know, Democrats or certain people who think they're in the illusion of control. But, but then let's flip it then. Like, what, if, if it's not going to happen that quickly from the regulatory side, then... No, not what, in my lifetime. Right. Then what, what, what would be the best practice for uh, protocol companies, companies that are using tokens in, in creating mechanisms that are sort of looking out for their employees, looking out for their community, or, or maybe build in some of the stuff, the way that right now a lot of corporates are moving away from social issues that are sensitive and by removing sponsorship. Okay, so the first, the first thing, Carlos, is we have to deal with the law. <laughs> the law is not going to change, right? And that's why I keep talking about tickets, because most tickets and equity, okay? That, that's where we should be, at least 90% of ICOs should be tickets and equity. Tickets are unlimited number fixed price, and there is a way to raise money with that. We learn, we see it on Kickstarter every day. The problem here is that it doesn't raise spectacular amounts of money. I met some guys in uh, Vilnius, Lithuania, the other day, who I, I told them don't go for a hundred million or a hundred thousand ether. You know, drop it down. They managed to raise twenty thousand ether. It's twenty million dollars for a nice little project that has some small chance of working out. It's a lot of money. So we're throwing, we're allocating money very inefficiently. And I think we could fund lots and lots of companies if we just do it a stage-wise, you know, get to first base model. We can do that with tickets. The second is equity. Let's have a fully regulated equity, you know, Reg D, private placement, the, the normal venture capital model, but just, you know, it's like, uh, it's like Andreessen says, software is eating the world. Well, I happen to think software is coming at, uh, eat his job because it's not that hard if you use algorithms to produce the same performance, at least if you model it historically so far. Um, the magic really isn't there and the illusion of control is very strong. So, and you gotta justify your 20%. So, and maybe, and, and by the way, there, there are exceptions here, right? So you guys are, are pretty well diversified. You got Vinod Kosla who has put large amount of risk capital into hardware fabs, right? Which otherwise are, you can't crowdfund a, a billion dollar fab. So there are a few good reasons for, I think, professional investors now. I, I won't make a blanket statement anymore, but by and large, we, I believe, and we are working on what T0 and Polymath are working on, we are doing the same. We are working on a, uh, an open market for accredited investors to make investments in equity tokens, and we hope to show, we hope to go way beyond what Polymath and T0 are doing. We hope to show then that largely diverse, broadly diversified portfolios, and we can then offer a single token that represents that, because we're in security land, selling only to accredited investors, unfortunately, is a good stable product with a reasonable sharp ratio with, with low volatility. And then we hope to take that 
to the SEC and say, look, why, why can't Bob and Betty buy this? Right? Why can't you just buy it at Charles Schwab? That is going to take a lot of time. I hope to be around for it. <laughs> but I think, and this is important, I think we are tokenizing the world. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily blockchain. The blocks and chains may not be around, I hope, forever. We'll f we're doing computer science to find other ways of sharing ledgers. But that if we are tokenizing the world, first of all, regulators had better rethink everything. Second of all, we'd better get in line, and because we don't want to go to jail, and then show that this is a different world and build the case. Mm. And that's, our, that's what we're doing at the Chamber of Digital Commerce. That's what we're doing at Crypto Valley Association, making reasonable statements and then show regulators the, the way. Yeah, but if we park that and we put the onus on the token developers to sort of maybe bridge that gap, what would you recommend? What would you recommend in terms of how they deal with their employees, if, if they have any? token vesting schedules, all these things. You mentioned earlier taxation, maybe built in the taxation PAYE for employees. What other mechanisms would you build in technology to solve what regulation can't solve? Well, in equity space, for equity tokens, you mean? So we know a lot about that, right? We've been doing that for a long time. Uh, I think there are still a lot of myths and shared delusions in management and in the way companies are run. And for example, we have no board of directors. We're never going to have a board of directors. We have no management at all. Um, we think the future of work is a hive model where people are autonomous, have lots of information, and collaborate and share. So, so I'm really interested in that stuff. I've written a few essays on this. There are tools we still need to get autonomous groups of people to collaborate and share better. Uh, communication is critical in that environment. And you can tell it's a movement, right? There's books, Frederick Wallou and all these, Gary Hamler are talking about self-managed organizations. So, so one thing you could say, well, what about DAOs? or some modification of DAOs, right? That's not a security or something. And I think that's all part of it. I wouldn't want to commit to software because, and maybe software with AI, but I think there's differential diagnoses on everything and you have to be flexible. Stuff happens, random events, black swans, things happen, and groups of people can come together to swarm toward problems and fix them, maybe without a rigid software code of conduct but with some flexibility and treating people like grown-ups. Um, like we have no HR department, we have no silos. People can spend half their time in any two or three or five different places they want. Uh, I think that makes you more anti-fragile, right? So, so read the book Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb and think how you can apply that to your own organization. If, and, and it's really the early days of this. Let's quickly move to bubbles. And you, you've written about it extensively. Moneyillusion.com had a, highlighted some of your points. Walk us through why we're not in a bubble. We're not in a bubble because people don't know what bubbles are. So just because something goes up and then it comes down doesn't mean it's a bubble. Um, the stock market went down ferociously in 2000 in the tech world. And yet if you had only bought a basket of stocks, of that event, many of which eventually failed, if you could have bought at the peak and just held on till now, uh, that would have been a terrific portfolio, even though... Let's say 80% of that went away. All right, how about if I, if I define a bubble as, okay. as within a generation of spend for one human being, the time interval for recovery is not present. Therefore, you're making a poor decision about pricing and therefore will never recover that because you don't have the luxury of time. Okay, well, so in this particular instance, the, uh, the 2000 tech wreck, uh, it was about 10 years before it was pretty much back at parity or, or so, and it didn't take much longer after that. Mm. 
And that's the, the amount of time you want to give a good index fund as well. So let's, so to me, I, I make a big distinction between bubbles and, and volatility. Mm. A bubble, the, my definition of a bubble is that bubbles can't pop twice. And this is important because if it pops once, then there was no there there. So Bernie Madoff, um, you know, Ponzi schemes. Uh, in fact, the tulip bubble was not a bubble. That's just misunderstanding of data that those trades at those prices actually didn't take place. It's just a, a misunderstanding about the data. Um, there are very, very few d- bubble, true bubbles that, that only pop once and then it never comes back. And, and those are the true Ponzi schemes and the true scams. There are a few. South Sea Island was another one. Very few. So when we talk about the housing bubble, 2008, housing started to decline in mid-2007. And that means the peak was at was in the first six months of 2007. If, again, we could go back to mid-2007 and buy housing at the, at the peak... Uh, housing was back within five years. That's not an investment horizon that, that is out of scope for many people, right? That's that's it. You, you know, for index investing, you want five to ten years at least. And so it's volatility. Um, it popped. It came back. It's not a bubble. Period. End of story. If it pops and that presents and the pop presents a buying opportunity, yeah. and smart people and hedge funds who have liquidity rush in and pick it up. It's not a bubble, it never was. What if I push further on that and I say, it's a function of trust, because you have to trust that that asset's gonna continue. I mean, one of the reasons in this book, you know, The Sapiens, which I'm, I'm sure you've read, you know, talks about how it, it took a trust in, in our currency system that we have today that isn't tied to the gold, or isn't tied to, to assets, um, we trust this thing, which then enables to, to create movement of capital, which en- enables us to create this growth. And it's only through that trust that that system functions. But if, if that trust erodes, then all of a sudden you don't have that recovery that you just spoke about. You know, we, we obviously trust real estate. We trust that it has some value, and therefore it's your, your rationale makes sense. You'd say, well, is this a bubble really? Maybe not. It's just volatility. But if I say, do we collectively feel that crypto is mm-hmm. now establish itself as a trustworthy store of value, then you really fully assert that it's not a bubble. Yeah, it's absolutely not a bubble. If cryptocurrency's price drops, there's a bunch of hedge funds and smart people who make money trading all day, jumping in and grabbing the buying opportunity. Um, so, so for example, I think Bitcoin has a tremendous future ahead, and, and I, I'm 90% sure it will reach $100,000. I'm also 90% sure eventually it will be zero eventually because we're just going to come up with much better things and it's not that's not really built to last and i think in the meantime uh uh that's the natural cycle of of innovation right we trust the old things that are tried and true and those build up and up and up and then some company comes people come along and socially validate some new s curve that then takes us takes that away and builds a new thing happens all the time and then that tends to work better when you deal with indices rather than individuals, right? Because if you look at any one individual company from like the 1900s, it had its highs, lows. It might have had a, bu- a bubble peak and then it might have recovered, but then it might have never recovered and then it ultimately have died. So well, I guess what you're arguing is is a, a rationale for an index. Oh, yeah. And we're building that index. That's right. Unfortunately. Yeah, that was a leading question. It, yeah, thank you. <laughs> also, I'll, I'll get you your Bitcoin later on that one. Uh, so, yeah, so we're building an index, and I'll, I want to describe it a bit. It's a, unfortunately a security because it's really a great product for Bob and Betty, but they won't be able to buy it. Um, it's the top 50 cryptocurrencies 
allocated flat, flat. So you take, you know, you invest 10,000 every week in it and you just do one fiftieth of the money you're investing every single week over and over. No cherry picking, no favorites. So we've been modeling this for months and months and it's unbelievable, Carlos. It's, we're seeing a sharp ratio between three and four um, on almost any time period you wanna choose, as long as it's long, indexes need more than a few months, right? To bear out there the thesis. But on, on time periods of nine months or more, we're seeing a sharp ratio of three and four. Um, nobody has that sharp ratio because you've got tremendous gains. You've got huge winners here, but the volatility is tremendous. So you divide by the volatility and your sharp ratio goes way down. Um, so I believe that's a great product for people, for, for the average person. And we'd love to convince regulators of this. Um, also, I want to go back to what you just said about the individual, right? Is the individual a bubble or is it just something that was tried and didn't work? Was the BlackBerry a bubble? No, it was. I uh, it was, man. I can't believe it. Okay, but it wasn't a bubble. It was an experiment. It was a market yeah. that came that was then superseded by something better. Volatility and natural destruction that Schumpeter talks about of creative destruction, moving things forward. That's not bubbles. The definition of a bubble is it only pops once. Okay, and if it's something that got superseded by something else, sorry for the BlackBerry people and the Blockbuster people and the Sony people who couldn't see it coming. But uh, you know. This is how we roll. This is how we improve and, and move forward. So do entrepreneurs, and I say I've started 23 companies, I'm sure 18 of those died horribly. Were those bubbles? No, those are failures. Failure's not a bubble. Well, we always like to end our, our podcast with some unrelated questions, some fun questions. <laughs> sure. What, what's left on your bucket list? I mean, you've done just about everything <laughs> commercially, so maybe likewise, what, what's left on your bucket list? I have done almost nothing commercially. I can't wait to bring the personal data locker that I wrote about in my book that came out in 2010, Pole. So look, the bucket list for, Pole, for, for Pillar is to replace the iOS and the Android operating systems and have a Pillar phone. That you'll, your Pillar phone is what I call in my book the dumb phone. Um, it's actually a pretty good read. I hope people read Poll. Uh, the dumb phone knows nothing and has no apps and just has access to everything out there. Um, I think we could do that with education. I mean, why are we getting tests on things that Siri knows? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, is anyone studying critical thinking, variance, uh, statistics, decision science? No, these are things that I would love to become mainstream. Um, so I'm working pretty hard now after years kind of in the doldrums of not getting any traction, having not, can't do any more angel investing and no one wants to hire a guy in his 50s who retired at age 40. Um, I, I'm now really fired up to make some of these changes and bring decision science and statistical literacy to people through, through a platform like Pillar. On Pillar, you know, you'll data mine yourself you'll employ some bot that can predictively analyze your your data exhaust and tell you what you want to buy next but if you don't like that one fire it because it's yours you own it and facebook doesn't right so build your own house rather than renting your data house from facebook and google um this is boiling the ocean and i'm just getting started i think i think i kind of <laughs> almost know what your answer is going to be to this next <laughs> question but uh, you know we look back today at the days of slavery and think oh my goodness how did humanity get it so wrong yeah and if you fast forward 50 years, what do you think we're going to look back on today and be like, oh, wow, I can't believe we were doing that so wrong? Uh, okay, so government, money, social, uh, it's called social choice, how we vote, how, how, how power works, 
power environments or power politics. Um, you know, I'm one of these purists or people who think that the world should be more or less a meritocracy and everybody should be given a chance and we're not even close. The more you study it, the more you realize it's very skewed. I mean, it's, we're all fooled by randomness and cognitive biases that Danny Kahneman talks about in his book and Tversky. And, and I don't get to redesign the world, although maybe I'll write a book about this someday, but education is fundamentally broken and Bill Gates doesn't get it. And Bill Gates is the most influential factor in education ever. And he's made some monster blunders in education. Monster. There's, there's a great book called the, the Death and Life of the Great American School System where Bill Gates is sort of a Darth Vader character. Mm. Um, so education I'm really interested in and I think has to change radically. We're, we're testing people. We're putting people in cohorts of the same age. We're giving them, we're teaching them calculus. Did you take calculus? Yeah, I did. Did you ever use it? Once? No. no once? Really. Yeah, once. Oh. How many quarters did you take? I took six. Yeah, <laughs> calculus one, calculus two, and I think you know there's all this stuff you need for thermo and all that kind of stuff. We're torturing people with outdated crap that they can't, that they'll never use. Yeah. Right. We're so the way that that education has to work has got to be by projects. You got to learn what a project is, how to sell it to other people. Yeah. Whether you get people behind you or you follow. These are the dynamics, and you do projects. It's like Montessori for grown-ups. It's like Montessori for grown-ups. Yeah. I can't wait. I, I'm, I'm totally bought into that model. And, I, and actually, I was just having a chat with a friend of mine in Germany. I just came back yesterday. And um, it was interesting. He was telling me, I was, I was chatting with him how here in the UK, there's a, a couple of retail stores where there's queues that are around the corners, you know, like blocks and blocks of queues. And he said, <laughs> you know what we have a problem with here in Germany, which is, and I'm like, what? I thought he was going to say something retail related. And he was like, no, kindergartens. It's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. parents queue for miles. I'm like, well, there's got to be a business behind it. I mean, there's got to be yeah, some right. opportunity. It's like, no, like the regulation and, and some of the, the, the formalities of it. And like, I, I think that there is definitely a place to both commercialize education better, but to yeah. democratize it better and not have yeah. parents be uh, so, so um, victims to, to a process that uh, doesn't favor their children in the wrong, long run. The game, the playing field is very, very skewed. Right, so in the United States, these accredited institutions and the, the grade game, the test game, and the, the venture capitalists are showing up, building these cool schools that, that play that game so you can get your SAT scores high enough, so you can get into Harvard, so you can get your GMAT, and you can get your MBA. That entire factory production line is broken. And the fundamental unit of commerce is a project, right? So we should learn more about projects and their failure rates and how to do experiments that lead to projects and how to pour more resources into projects that are working. And maybe we should be funding projects and not companies. And guess what? The ICO is a project finance tool. So maybe we can evolve this and do it with tokens. Mm. And that may change the playing field. This is like the best ending ever. Um, <laughs> can I give you my, it all together. Can I give you my, my personal goal? Yes. I, I, want, I want to be in 100 countries. I want to visit 100 countries in my life. Excellent. Where are we at now? Just yesterday I came back from Lithuania, so that's number 88. 88. Yeah. So right, what's get, next? Getting there. I hope the Cayman Islands because for, for regulatory reasons, <laughs> we're most likely to be setting up our Cryptex index fund in the Caymans, not in Switzerland or... You know, someplace uh, that looks like the best regulatory place. Cool. Well, David, thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. 
and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.